You are listening to Africa Rights Talk, a Center for Human Rights podcast series hosted by Tatenda Musinahama. Welcome to the conversation. Hi Karabo, how are you doing? So today we are just going to be talking about the UNCRC and this discussion is going to be based on commemorating the UNCRC. So can you just tell us and the audience what the UNCRC is? Okay, so the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child, that's um, the full name of it, um, is actually the first treaty that recognizes children as individual rights holders. So it provides for um, children's rights and children's rights that are enforceable against the state and even against the parents. So it was the first time that um, countries in the world agreed that children's protection and and promotion of their well-being necessitated a treaty that um, recognized the specific rights of children. What effect does the UNCRC have? What does it speak to in terms of regarding children as individuals with certain rights. When you read about the history of the UNCRC itself, you can trace how there were those debates about, well, we need to move from um, a welfareist approach only in relation to children, but actually recognizing them as individual rights holders. So that's why, um, you know, with the UNCRC, you will know that there are um, basically people always talk about four principles, which um, includes best interests, which includes um, life and development, but also importantly, one of them is um, child participation. It actually is very important to ensure that whatever these rights are, children are recognized as their rights bearers. And the only way to try and ensure that as well is to ensure that they are participating or they are represented in discussions about their lives, about things that affect them. And that is one of the important aspects of it, is ensuring that we're not having a treaty that says we recognize children's rights, but the only way to enforce it is to other people. We actually take think that it's very important to have children as well speak for themselves and speak mm-hmm. about their own uh, lives and how the rights we say they have are being realized or not mm-hmm. and what affects them in their day-to-day life. So it's very important that you raise that. You mentioned the issue of child participation and how exactly are children participating in ensuring that their rights are realized? Well, I think generally child participation means that even in, in the house when you're going to make a decision about <laughs> whether you're moving or not or whether you are buying a certain product or not and it, it affects the children you should have discussions with them but I mean I think from a legal perspective as well as administrative perspective it means that if you are going to uh, take steps let's say you you have a school and um, you want to build a bridge um, you need to include children in discussions about how will that bridge enable them to get to school or you know what are, what what kind of impact will it have in their lives we know also through this right to participate it includes being able to be legally represented in matters that affect children so those are the different ways but I think what we must emphasize is the fact that it's not only about being heard in legal and administrative process it means that every day even in a school if a school is is deciding to change something they actually ideally should be asking the learners um, we want to change 
school starting time or something, how will this affect you and do you agree or not? And if not, why? So it requires a lot of mindset shift in relation to how people engage with children and reminding them that just because they're children, it doesn't mean that you can take decisions without even asking for their opinion. Even if in the end, the children's opinion doesn't carry the day, which is something very important that we always, because our work on children's rights on a daily basis, that we emphasize is that it doesn't guarantee what suits them, but it, it, at least they would have been heard and you would consider what they said in whatever decision you're making. That's a very important point that you raised because the issue wasn't necessarily children's rights. It was more of a discussion of do children have rights to begin with. So most children's rights organizations have done a lot of work in making sure that these rights are recognized. So can you explain to the audience what the Center for Child Law, what the nature of their work is? So we do advocacy, research, and importantly litigation on children's rights. Mm-hmm. That means that we take either individual cases for children or we represent a group of children. Sometimes children's rights organizations, if they're doing work that needs to be taken to court on behalf of children, so that's how we engage with children's rights and the center's been there for 20 years and the first case the center did actually was representing a child who was caught up in a divorce matter and did not want to see one of the parents and through the legal representation she got from the center she got what she wanted but it was actually funny enough more about making the one parent recognize that the child is individual and you can't say you will come to my house on this and this day even when you interfere with the child's schooling and their extramural activities so it's funny because the child and the parent end up reconciling but oh, wow. the parent took the child seriously once she realized that actually maybe I should have listened to her. all she was saying was that you can't say because the court order said I must come see you Monday, Wednesday and Friday now on Wednesday I must miss my choir practice of course and so you know it requires that you know my kind of a, a pragmatic thinking and I think that's what we try to do with our work we, we don't just focus on a win in the court but it's actually that shifting of mindsets that sometimes also requires that after we get a successful um, court order we do a lot of work on the ground to try and, and make people understand why we did a certain case hmm. that's interesting because most parents today regard children as objects to be honest as much as we have made efforts to ensure that children's rights are recognized children are not consulted as far as issues that really affect them and i think what you mentioned there the work of the center for child law is is really doing so well in making sure that children are heard and um, that even as parents change the approach to handling children they do consider um, the opinions of children as well so i just want to find out how relevant is this UNCRC? Is it, how many countries have ratified to it? Well, I, I think that the CRC has proven itself to be one of the most important treaties in the world because the only country that has not ratified it is uh, the United States. So all the countries of the world have ratified it and um, that means that they have to now try and align their laws and their policies and their processes with the obligations that come with being a treaty member. So already, I mean, it's, as you said, it's 30 years of the CRC. A lot of countries have actually started trying to align. And I must mention that, you know, with South Africa, the UNCRC was the first treaty that after the end of apartheid was ratified. Nelson Mandela signed it as the first treaty and it influenced the rights that we have in the constitution. So it has had that impact and it has on a lot of countries. 
So most of the criticism and debate that has come with the UNCRC, particularly in the African context, is that it's not um, Afrocentric. So my question relates to the approach of the UNCRC to cultural relativism. I think some of the criticism might be valid, but I think also on the African continent, we have the African Charter on the rights and wealth of the child. And the funny thing is that on some, on most of the issues, the Charter and the, the Convention are not dissimilar. They actually have a similar approach. The, the thing that's strong in the African Charter is that it, it does focus on what we can term, you know, African problems that were not included in the CRC. And that, that is very important because there are very important aspects that were not included in, in the CRC that the African Charter is strong on. I do think, though, that to say that maybe the convention, you know, is not uh, Afrocentric in, in issues that relate to how you discipline children or not is not entirely correct because the charter itself has provisions in relation to how we must correct children in a humane way, how we must not treat children in a degrading way and all those things. And those things link with whether, uh, you know, as, as the one of the topical issues, whether you use corporal punishment or not. So if you read the charter properly and you read the convention, mention on these issues, they're more aligned because all it's saying is that, well, there are other ways of disciplining children uh, and also you've undertaken to not treat your child in a way that's dehumanizing, in a way that's degrading, in a way that is harmful to their physical, mental well-being. Mm-hmm. I mean, generally, um, there's some issues that the, the CRC is weak on. So um, harmful practices, the issue of children's responsibilities. There's no provision in this in the um, CRC about these responsibilities of children. It's a very controversial aspect, but we know it has been unpacked and there's even a general comment in relation to that from the African Charter to try and emphasize the fact that uh, we recognize that this does not give leeway for children to be overburdened. They still are children, but we, we have this provision that says that they we must be teaching them to be responsible. And I think that's the most important thing that we must start with is that all these provisions at the end of the day are tools for parents to actually make sure that they enhance what they put into the child's uh, development. So if you look at it from that way, whatever you're going to end up getting out at the end is what you put in. So on harmful practices, obviously the, the charter is, is very strong and it's clearer on, for instance, saying that the age of consent to marriage is 18 without exceptions, which is not something that is in the CRC. You have a very important provision that the CRC um, and the, the, the committee learned a lot from, which is um, the article that says that before you imprison a, a mother of young children, you must consider the impact on the children and all that. And I mean, in South Africa, it led to a very seminal judgment that has been used worldwide. So the African Charter has quite a lot of strong provisions um, that if you read it together with the CRC, you mm-hmm. can actually enhance the protection. And actually, I think we benefit from having both uh, on the continent. Of course, yeah. of course. Yeah. That's fantastic. So, okay, I hear that part. But then now it comes to... It's, it's easy for us to make laws and certain treaties that look good on paper, but in practice, it's, 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 it's very difficult to apply. As much as parents would like to engage and put these um, laws into practice, somehow it, there seems to be a distinction and friction between now children being aware of their rights and taking away the responsibility of parents to ensure that these children are made responsible, these children are, you know, they are disciplined in, in humane ways. So my question comes down to 
how best can we make sure that these laws are translated to mean something that's practical like in the home? I think the first thing we must do is dispel the notion that saying that children have rights means that parents are disempowered. And okay. I hear that a lot and that's, for me, like in South Africa, I always say to people, well, take, tell, tell me in the Constitution, in Section 28 particular, which right is making it a problem for you to actually um, raise your child the way you want to. And I think people don't reflect like that. It's always easy to, to have off-the-cuff kind of responses. Mm-hmm. I agree with you, they still have to be practical. So what we need to do is that apart from having the provision in the law, we must start um, having ways that we guide society. It's a very difficult thing, but mm-hmm. it means that you have to have, you know, some organizations are doing this kind of work. They will do a, a manual on positive parenting. They will okay. do, and then they will have free workshops for people to be taught how to deal with uh, conflict in relation to their children. Mm-hmm. And I do think that we also need to, as we, we, we do already in our work, remind children that Yes, you have your rights, but rights do come with responsibility. First responsibility for yourself to be responsible and respect yourself and respect others and respect your parents. So you have to always be doing that that dual work. And I, I, I think maybe one of the shortcomings that was there is that as we were, uh, you know, I'm not probably was still in school, but as as the, the movements were promoting children's rights, we we forgot to engage in depth with the parents, and their fear of children's rights is more about the fact that they don't understand them rather than actually on paper there's a problem with their rights. There isn't. I think we need to engage with parents and give them tools and 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 empower them to not have this fear, and also to empower them to know where to get help if they're struggling. So that is where the work needs to come in relation to children's rights is to engage and remind people that in the end we actually want you to be the best parent for your child uh, not to penalize you for your shortcomings or anything you have that holistic approach that's how you also enable the child to be safe at home when you look at the south african context learners have been attacking um, their teachers how do these treaties and laws bridge the gap now to replace certain forms of discipline that children used to understand and implement the ones that are recommended as humane in the charters? Well, I think the idea that uh, children understood disip- uh, corporal punishment as discipline, uh, for me, I would not agree with that. And just to give you a quick example, I went to a meeting about corporal punishment where we had somebody who was a in 1976, one of the young people who were rebelling against the apartheid government, and he told us the story of how um, teachers were instructed to beat them in schools, and they they said to the teachers, well, if you start beating us, we're going to have to beat you back. So I think we must also remember that the different generations, and to say that the one generation understood copper punishment as the way of discipline, and now they want to continue that in the current generation is one of the the reasons why we might be having issues. But again, in the South African context, I think that the big problem is studies are showing the relatedness of violence in the home, in the school. I think your your point that you you said earlier on about the practical tools is the, the problem. So you had 1996, we had the Schools Act being adopted saying that it is outlawing corporal punishment in the schools. But I don't think enough was done to equip teachers on alternatives. Uh, I don't think enough was done to say, well, this is how you keep the discipline. And also when you have, um, you know, children who are in homes where parents are not there to help and, you know, we, we know we have um, 
holidays of divorce, we have a lot of children staying with grandparents or single parents. Those societal um, issues also play into that. And I think a lot of investment needs to go there. But in the schools, I, I, I think there has been some projects to try and promote positive discipline. I still believe that not enough has been done there. Something urgent needs to be done in relation to that. We must also not divorce it from the fact that our society in South Africa has quite a serious problem with violence. What other forms or alternatives can you give as far as um, discipline is concerned? Well, I mean, I think it has to be context-bound. So, I mean, in schools, the big issues are getting the demerit systems and, and, and training teachers on how, apart from punishing the learners, we have to train the teachers also how to handle um, a conflict in classes. I think we must also not forget, we have a lot of children who have, have problems in class and mm-hmm. may misbehave because they have a learning disability or a learning challenge. And if, if we're not equipped uh, and teachers are not equipped to understand that and to get intervention as necessary for that, things have a tendency of escalating. So I think there's a need to, to come up with training. I mean, when teachers are even at, at teachers' colleges, they need to start being taught about, uh, you know, how do you handle conflict between students. I think there's a lot of work that can be done with psychologists and with uh, with the, uh, and then empowering uh, teachers as they are in training. And then also there's a need for continuous training. Mm-hmm. You have to have uh, continuous, you know, um, training. Um, and teachers must have spaces also to um, debrief about the challenges because you have to be adaptable. If you start seeing that in a township, a specific township, a specific area, they, the learners are acting in a certain maybe there's a problem in that small community that you're missing and you know by trying to just use corporal punishment or getting angry you're not going to get to that maybe all of them are coming from homes where they don't have enough food or enough something and we're not now getting the help um i i, I you know i'm not saying that um teachers are always wrong but i what i'm saying is that i think we need to invest a lot in helping everybody who works with children and giving them resources because it takes a lot to actually make sure that children are understood but also they're given the help and you also help the children by helping those who work with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely and I do agree with you and you did raise a very important point as far as you know um, resources are concerned so has the South African government been engaging as far as providing these resources? Yeah, so that, is, <laughs> that is a crucial question because also sometimes you find that countries have resources but they're just misusing them. I mean in South Africa we have a mixed bag. We have to give you an example, you, you have short of classrooms in the Eastern Cape province where children are learning in math schools and then you read that that very province has sent money back to Treasury and they underspent. There's the problem I think in South Africa is the issue of accountability rather than resources. I really think that in South Africa the resources are there. People are not accountable. People think you can take 20 years to sort out children's rights issues that actually need an immediate solution. I always say that for instance you know with the sanitation issue and the schools where children are falling into the the pit toilets. To say that you will sort it out in 20 years is saying that all the people who are children currently don't matter, right? Because by the time you sort it out, there will be adults. Yes. Um, mm. it's, and South Africa, in my view, is not short of resources. Um, it's very important for all of us who work on children's rights issues to start engaging with the budgets and to in South Africa we started doing that a little bit and questioning how budgeting happens and also you know our governments try to cost legislation and programs but most of the time that is out like the budget does not align with what really is needed but we can do a lot more in relation to how we uh, hold government accountable in relation to how the budget 
how they spend the money. And when people send money back, unspent, uh, you know, underspending to government, when children are still learning under trees, there needs to be repercussions. We can't just say, okay, and then next year they get more money and then mm. sort it out. Yeah. yeah. What I've seen from reading uh, work on other countries is that Sometimes you find that countries that you think are the poorest on the continent actually do far better on children's rights implementation because with a small budget they prioritize um, and they're able to, to do and they focus. So my, my issue there is that, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean because you're smaller and maybe it's considered slightly poorer as a country, you can't achieve what you need to for children. It's about focus. I mean, you know, as I say, in South Africa, I don't think we have a shortage of resources, but our accountability and the use of resources is, is really um, very appalling. We shouldn't be having some of the challenges we have right now in relation to implementing children's rights. Mm. That's a very good point because after all, children are the future of, of tomorrow. So if we invest in children, we're definitely investing in a better um, and brighter future for our country. South Africa is facing, I'd like to say it's a crisis as far as dealing with migration is concerned. How was the welfare for migrant children in South Africa? Okay, so the starting point there is that actually migrant children, uh, particularly if they're unaccompanied, they're supposed to be treated as children in need of care and protection. We're supposed to take them into our care and protection system, provide them with education, see if you can reunify them with their families or not. And where you can't, you have to keep them in the country and um, provide them then with uh, documentation. Obviously, as you say, there are a lot of challenges with implementing that. Um, we know also that where children are migrant and irregular migrants with their parents, they've been denied access to education, they've been denied access to health. Um, recently, we did a case in relation to access to education, which, funny enough, did not only affect migrant children, but also South African children who don't have birth certificates. We argued that we're saying that it shouldn't matter that children have documents or not. Um, you, you should allow them to be in, in schools, and if they're migrant children, well, if the parents and the children get deported, that's when your, your obligation to educate them stops. But as long as they're here, you should be allowing them to be in school. I mean, in some quarters, it's not a popular uh, argument. But the, the point is that uh, if we don't do that, we are saying that there are children who must just be left to, uh, to be idle. And how are we developing them? How are we actually upholding all these commitments to the CRC in relation to those children? And is it not going to leave our country? We're saying actually we're fine with having members of our society in this day and age who are not educated, who cannot read, who cannot write, and we're fine with it. And I think that's why we're challenging this this, this notion of using um, documentation or um, uh, particularly whether people are regularized or not, using that as a, as a way to keep children out of services. Mm -hmm. So how can we measure the impact of the UNCRC? Yes, that's a very important question because after all has been said and done, you, as you said, it's it's um it's all about implementation and all. That. So I think one of the important things you you know people must remember is that the UNCRC itself has a reporting uh, mechanism. So there's duties on countries to report on how they're advancing their rights, and that requires governments to actually write reports and say we've done one, two, three, four. So that's how they monitor, and that's also how also civil society monitors government. Yeah, using it in advocacy as well. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's another important um, way of, of, of making sure that um, as legislation is being drafted, um, you are, you, you know, countries are thinking about the obligations and you mentioned corporate punishment. I think that's one of the areas where the CRC and has been used. 
for advocacy and to try and convince uh, countries to promote positive discipline and other alternative discipline methods. So I think looking at that, there is there is particularly in South Africa, we've made some traction in making sure that it's visible, it, it's, 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 it means something, and it's having that impact of shifting things. Hmm. You mentioned a reporting structure as far as the UNCRC is concerned. Is it not susceptible to politics? Well, politics play into it. I think um, so. You know, they have a committee of experts that are nominated by their countries. Um, but when they, the committee, they don't represent their country. Okay. Independent experts. But obviously, these are political issues, and I think so. Countries go and present the present their reports. Civil society present their reports, and the the committee makes concluding observations, which are not necessarily binding. I think politics maybe does play into it. But from what I seen in the reports that come out the committee also looks at you know they are aware of how far they can go or not so in the end it's recommendations what challenges have you faced in your work as far as dealing with and implementing the uncrc yeah i think that's exactly what you're saying about the fact that you countries go and narrate and they say well we'll do one two three four and then concluding observations come and we as organizations on the ground uh, very important because once the continuous observations are out, the committee is sort of done for them. So you mm. have to take them, you, have, you as the people on the ground have to hold government accountable. And that's what we try and do. So we, the challenges we face is that after that process, you do find that maybe there is lack of commitment from the country to actually, uh, you know, account or, or even consider uh, implementing those those concluding um, observations and you have to start struggling and you find that sometimes they're backtracking mm. um, and you know once in a while you get the the, the odd line that yeah, but we have our own sovereignty and like that you <laughs> you ratified of course yeah so it, it does it, it is it is a challenge on the ground thank you so much Karapo this was a very informative discussion and it did give a picture of what the UNCRC is you did explain to us it's you know it's perfect and its value in society. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. This has been Africa Rides Talk with me, Tatenda Musina Hamai. Join us in our other episodes as we continue to explore other human rights issues.